Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, it's our March book club episode. We've been reading Eat Up by Ruby Tando, a non-fiction book about the pleasures of falling back in love with food. We'll be discussing our thoughts about the book and hearing my interview with Ruby herself. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another book club episode of Seriously. It's our third book club special. And this week we're doing a book that I have so much love for. It's written by a fantastic writer and my actual friend, Ruby Tando, and the book is Eat Up. Uh, The subtitle is Food, Appetite and Eating What You Want. And this is a long piece of food writing from Ruby. You might have read her pieces in The Guardian, Elle, Vice, and you might have read her other books, which were cookbooks, Crumb and Flavor. But this is her first kind of long nonfiction food writing book that's not sort of a collection of recipes, but actually a long prose book. And it's basically all about everyone's relationship with food and how we all have very complicated, difficult relationships with food. And the idea behind the book is that Ruby wants you to fall back in love with food and have a kind of very joyful and very pleasurable relationship with food and one that's sort of free from shame and control and restrictions, which I think is a lot more difficult than it sometimes sounds because... I think all of us try really hard to have a positive relationship with our food, but it can be difficult to go back to basics. And that's what the whole idea of this book is about. But it's divided into lots of different sections. And it's also got an amazing index, which I think really shows you (laughs) how um, broad Ruby's writing is and how referential, because you can go in the index and see everything from sort of Rihanna to Lindsay West. to It's just, you kind of have to look at it and see for yourself because it's, crazy and varied so yeah that's what we're discussing this week so Caroline what did you make of Eat Up? I absolutely love this book and I think it's a good example of how well it worked on me if I just say that it arrived in the post I think on like a Tuesday morning I didn't get a chance to look into it until I went to bed that evening I had been reading it for about 10 minutes when I started to feel incredibly hungry and it was like half past 11 so it was not a time that I normally eat and not just like hungry in that like piece of toast hungry hungry for something really special and like a treat and something really nice so I this was sort of post Christmas in that like January period where you still have random like 
bits of confectionery around your house. I found a Terry's chocolate orange in the abandoned, like, sweet corner of our living room, took it back to bed, unwrapped it and ate the entire thing while I read like three more chapters of the book and felt very happy with my choices. And it felt like the perfect thing to be really indulging in as I was Mm. also indulging in some really beautiful prose about eating. So that for me, I think I would like to think that everyone who reads this book has a story like that, something that made them really crave that they then just satisfied without feeling bad or questioning whether they should. Totally. I think Ruby's got a real way with words when writing about food in that she really conjures <laughs> the like full sensual pleasure in each mm. bit of food, whether she's talking about like a fried egg or, you know, a piece of novelty chocolate or, you know, a peach, whatever it is. She's always talking about kind of like the smells, the textures, the kind of like little joys that come with the mm. packaging you know, she, whether it's the the fork going into the cling film of a, a ready meal, that kind of popping noise, she just gets all those little things. And I think that sometimes can make you way more hungry than yeah. a very like wordy, you know, overly mellifluous description of, you know, the acid uh, tang combination of, you know, when you read like really fancy food reviews and they're like the tartness of the blah just really offsets the mm. creaminess of the blah. And you're like, wait, what? I don't, this is not really resonating with how I that's eat not food. how I think of food yeah, yeah I think of it like is it yummy yes or no yeah. that kind of thing but she yeah. gets all the rustling of the cream egg wrapper so so mm. specifically that you're like oh shit I want one of those right now yeah and so she's really good on all of the sensual elements of food but she's also particularly good at writing about all the ways in which we consciously and unconsciously restrict our enjoyment of food and that's one of the ways in which this book is so wide ranging and diverse because she does write about eating disorders, including her own experiences of them. But she also writes about sort of quote unquote wellness gurus and the idea of superfoods and only eating avocado because it's quote a good fat and that kind of stuff. Mm. But also how food might have emotional resonances, good ones and bad ones that like you might have aspects to do with your heritage or like a failed relationship and how you might avoid eating a whole like segment of foods just because you associate them with something bad in your life so she really goes into all of the ways in which you might have fallen out of love with food before she then turns that round and says but here are the ways in which you can fall back in love with it mm-hmm. um and so one of the ways that she does that is that I, i've noticed actually there's a bit of a trend recently for non-fiction like prose books to include recipes in them Mm. but I generally don't like this because the recipes are often quite banal and not I don't feel like they really add anything to the total sum of the book which is not at all the case with Ruby's not least because she as you said she's written two recipe books she is a very accomplished food writer but also her recipes are really funny and interesting like there's one that is literally for how to eat a bar of chocolate Mm. and it's like step one purchase your favorite bar of chocolate step two sit down and look at it and really appreciate it you know it's that kind of talking you through how to really appreciate what you have in the moment savor it and like let it feel good without any complications of shame or distress or anything exactly and I think some of what we're talking about sounds almost so um, basic that it could be a little bit ridiculous like the Mm. idea that you need to look at something before you eat it almost sounds kind of 
patronizing and silly but the fact of the matter is we're actually so far from those kind of like basic healthy steps that we have in relationship with our food that for me it feels like quite radical to think oh yeah I need to like sit down and you know maybe like use cutlery even if I'm at my desk and yeah <laughs> like just silly things like that that actually do make you much more aware of what you're eating and enjoy it more mm. and again the focus is always on enjoyment really more than anything else and I think sometimes people take that out of context with Ruby's work and I see criticisms of her that are sort of like well, if you eat a cream egg for every meal, you're not going to be very healthy, are you? And you're going to feel sick and it's not going to be good for you. And this book knows that and it's very mm. aware of that, but it's sort of saying if you actually listen to your body and listen to your needs and think consciously about it and don't restrict yourself, something that you really have a particular hunger for in the moment, then actually you're probably going to end up eating <laughs> in a much more balanced and varied way than you would if you were just like always denying yourself cream eggs and then like binging on cream eggs. Exactly. Yeah. She really, she is a very good example of someone who takes the old doctrine of like everything in moderation and applies it to modern life. Because it makes me think of, there's a fantastic profile that Taffy Aikner, um, a American feature writer who I really think is great, wrote, I think for the New York Times, about like the role of Weight Watchers in the new wellness mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And just there's a little paragraph in that where she explained how as one of the many things that she had been told to do as like, a woman who was overweight, she'd gone to a series of intuitive eating classes, which as a general principle, like sounds like a good idea. But the trouble was that I think these classes were run possibly by somebody quite toxic. And mm. she described how she spent an entire evening like with a, a single raisin in her mouth being made to like suck it and chew it and not oh, swallow no. it as a way of like appreciating what you have and learning to listen to your body's responses. And that's so she... beyond your instincts. That's so exactly. Funny. So I think Ruby's a really good example of how she, what she is advocating is a kind of intuitive eating, yeah. like listening to yourself and just doing what feels right rather than what anyone else is trying to tell you or what society expects or anything. But don't take it to a stupid extreme and spend a whole evening eating a raisin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> One thing I love about this book and Ruby's writing in general is that it's very empathetic, which is the most mm. important thing for me, I think, often in writing. And there's no judgment here. And if you're someone who say has done a lot of dieting, if you come to this book, there's not going to be any shaming of you for that. Like there's no voice here saying like, we should all eat what we want all the time. And if you're not doing that, then you're failing another standard. Yeah. It's about how actually that's always difficult. And, you know, you shouldn't ever feel bad about your food choices. And I really like that about her writing and I think it's one of the things that makes her such a good writer and just like a nice person to be around is that she's very sort of thoughtful of or at least takes space to think like okay the person that I'm talking to right now might have a different experience to what I have or the person I'm talking to right now might have complicating factors in their lives that mean they can't always do the things I'm saying mm. so like if if for example you're lactose intolerant and you can't eat dairy Ruby's not going to be like every time that you want to eat dairy you should eat dairy because <laughs> yeah. obviously no, it's not yeah. <laughs> it's not all doesn't always work that way and yeah I just I really like that when you read this book you feel like someone's sort of holding your hand and being like how do you how do you feel right now do you feel okay can I is mm. there anything you need 
rather than someone being like, okay, this is how to eat food. Exactly. Um, There's a really good chapter in it where she describes an episode that really illustrates that where her girlfriend is like unwell, she's getting a cold and Ruby in a slightly like smug way is like, I'm great at cooking. I'm going to make you well. I'm going to make you amazing chicken soup. I'm going to make you lovely broth. I'm going to make sure that like I nourish you and make you well. And she does all these things. And then like 24 hours later, her girlfriend is no better and she is also ill. And (laughs) after fine, like, and then another 24 hours later, she's like, fine, what we need right now is a curry. And they just like bin all of the healthy, fancy chicken soup and stuff that she's been making, order a massive takeaway, eat it in bed and feel amazing. And that was one of my favourite episodes because that's a really good illustration of her feeling of like, yeah, the amazing chicken soup would be amazing another time. But in this particular moment, maybe it was more about me trying to show off than it was actually what we needed to eat at that moment. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, there's no judgment about like just getting a takeaway instead of slaving over broth or anything. And I love that. That's yeah, because that's that's me all over. (laughs) (laughs) She's also really good, I think, at like all the things that make you interested in food from a really young age, like obviously instincts aside, because that's the main thing. But for example, there's lots of stuff in there on like rolled dal or like, yeah, uh, which, you know, is such a, I think, a classic food author in a weird way. Like almost every rolled dal book includes loads of weird food. I had a Roald Dahl cookbook. Yes, um, Ro- Ro- Roald Dahl's Revolting Recipes. It was yeah, the shit. It was amazing. Ugh. I remember particularly loving the, uh, oh, what was it? Oh, the Snozcumber one where you like had to hollow out a loaf of bread and fill it with egg to represent <laughs> Snozcumber. <There's, laughs> it was um, like a kind of inside out egg sandwich. You, there was a strawberry fudge recipe in there mm. that was very good and scottle recipe that was some sort of green juice and there was actually a a, the one for putting like toffee on the end of pencils from Mm. um charlie the chocolate factory yeah Mm. um which my mom actually did for a school fate because and it required like buying a sugar thermometer and all this other stuff i love it she actually did it and we sold them at a school fate and they were incredibly popular and of course the bruce bogtrotter cake Mm, yes is in there so anyway that that <laughs> next join us next week for our book club on Roald Dahl's revolting recipes <laughs> more, more food we like <laughs> <laughs> um yeah but there's loads of great uh references throughout you know to someone like Nora Ephron who's obviously like a big figure in in Ruby's kind of sphere of references to you know smaller you, you know when she talks about Gemma from Towie and her cups of teas how they can cure everything there's just loads of stuff like that in there Mm. which I think is such a great way to make the book more accessible but also I don't know it's just I think I always appreciate writing that's referential and has quotes from here there and everywhere and describes scenes from movies it's just something that you know it's why I love someone like Durga Chibos but any any writer that does that it sort of ends up being a little bit more special to me for some reason so I really like the the way that this book does that yeah there's some great pop culture food analysis this is one reason why I thought this would be a great book to do for seriously actually is that anyone who is interested in tv and film and so on and who is also interested in food will find a lot of very high quality analysis in this book of why food is used 
two sort of because so for instance ruby writes quite a lot about the film moonlight mm. which we've also talked about this um on the podcast before this aspect the the diner scene and how important that is but if you think like in a what's that film like two hours it's not a long film mm. you haven't got a lot of time to establish a character depth and be the relationships between those characters so you have to use things that are kind of a proxy for intimacy because you don't have time to show all the intimacy mm. and making food for somebody is an absolutely cast iron way that you can communicate to an audience that this person feels very strongly for this other person and they're pouring all this love into their food so yeah she's amazing on that she expresses it much better than I just have but that's yeah, she she has some very very interesting ideas on that. And once I'd read that chapter, I now I see it in like everything I see. Yeah. <laughs> like for instance, even, you know, we were talking last week about the shape of water, the fact that something that immediately connects um Sally Hawkins's character with the fish man is that she gives him eggs and she gives him like things to eat that he likes. Yeah. I'm obsessed with this in films especially. I've been threatening to write a piece about for for ages now about scenes in movies where one person eats and the other person doesn't mm -hmm. because that's even more intimate than two people eating together because it's i guess it's kind of rude like there was a bit in queer eye where anthony said to one of the one of the guys like oh i'll eat with you because i don't want to make you eat alone and i think mm. in moonlight there's loads of scenes where you know little is eating while no one else in the room is eating or Kevin's cooking for black at the end and not eating himself. And yeah. we see that in, I see that in movies all the time. I see it everywhere, but it's not something that happens very often in life unless you're like sick as Ruby is saying, you know, she's cooking for, for Leah in that way or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, she's, she's great. She's, she's great on all of those kinds of elements of food, whether it's food and sex or, you know, food and generosity, how food becomes like a metaphor for a loads of other things and how we're kind of socially conditioned to treat food as more than just food. Mm. And also just at a really base level, if, we, if you needed another reason to buy this book, I have from it learned the most amazing like weeknight pasta recipe that takes about 20 minutes to make and is delicious. Yeah. So um, yeah, you, you really can get everything you need from it. <laughs> So yeah, I think probably before we rhapsodise about it much longer, we should hear from the woman herself. So uh, she spoke to Anna earlier this week, and I think we can hear that interview now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So yeah, welcome Ruby Tando to Seriously. It's so nice to have you on. Uh, listeners will probably know Ruby from Twitter, her writing in The Guardian, uh, from The Great British Bake Off ages and ages ago now. Um, and we're here today to talk about Eat Up, your, your I want to say not so new book. I feel like it's been out for a little while. Yeah, like I feel like it and I have aged since it came out. But yeah, it's comparatively <laughs> new. Yeah, so I think a lot of people will know that you started your career on The Great British Bake Off. And you released two cookbooks called Crumb and mm-hmm. Flavour. And I think... A lot of seriously listeners will also have read your articles on food, whether that is in The Guardian or like in Elle or Vice. But because you have such a clear voice and a distinct style, I think when I think of you, I think of you first and foremost as a writer. And I wanted to ask if you always saw yourself as a writer or always had ambitions to be a writer or whether you made sort of a leap mentally from cooking and baking to food mm. writing. I mean, actually, like... So when when I went on the Bake Off, I was uh, at uni. I was doing philosophy and history of art, which I never finished. But I was giving it a go. And I thought that what I wanted to do with that degree in theory was to write stuff that kind of made these things approachable. So I thought that I was going to write like art history books that like nothing academic, nothing particularly serious, just like you know, art history for idiots type type of thing, which I, I, that's like my dream book. So that's why I wanted to write that stuff. And in a way, I've ended up doing the same for food, which is a, a funny, funny turn. Totally. I think accessibility has always been a big part of everything yeah, you write, yeah. right? I mean, like, I, I do not, I don't know, I think I struggle to stay engaged with stuff when I feel like it exists in its own tiny little niche world or when it's just like for a select few. So I have to make it accessible in order to stay interested. Otherwise, I do just get bored. Totally. So when did you decide that you were going to write Eat Up and why why that particular book? Um, Like I'd written some stuff. I'd written an article for Vice about wellness and clean eating and about how much I hate that stuff. And mm. there was this idea floated by a couple of publishers that maybe I do like a, a whole book about that. And I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want it to I didn't want to write a whole book in the negative. You know, I didn't want to just write all about this stuff that I hate anyway and give it any more airtime. So I was like, how do I write a book that is positive and engaging and has its own things to say rather than just being a counterpoint? And I kind of thought about it a lot. And that's how Eat Up came to be. Totally. And I w- that's funny that you you mentioned that Vice piece, which I feel like it was so influential in how attitudes began to shift about wellness and clean eating. The crux of the argument was, you know, that wellness doesn't always mean that you're actually well and introducing the concept of orthorexia to a lot of people, which is the idea that you can have an eating disorder around, um, you know, your food needing to be pure and clean, mm-hmm. which I think for a lot of people was something that they hadn't even kind of considered properly before. Yeah. But now people won't even use that word wellness anymore and clean eating anymore, even the kind of big people that you were talking about. And I wonder how, how does that feel to you, that shift? Uh, like, I am pleased with it, for sure. Like, I'm definitely glad that something's changing, there's something in the air. However, 
I think I'm a bit concerned that people have just what like what you said they've they're not using those words anymore I'm concerned that it's just become mm. about the language so people know that they shouldn't talk about clean eating anymore and so they just talk about like eating to get the glow or something you know like they talk in euphemisms they talk around it but the central premises remain the same so like that's my concern at the moment glow is such a funny one <laughs> i know i hate it so much <laughs> the idea that you'll just start radiating something if you yeah. eat like a carrot i love it yeah <laughs> uh, it's, it's nothing if not aspirational yeah so it's interesting that you say that you really wanted to write from a place of positives and i wonder why that instinct was in you is it because there's already so much language of negativity surrounding food about what you can't do and can't eat or is it just a personal thing that you would drive yourself mad if you were being that negative all day writing <laughs> I think there's definitely like a part of me that thrives on conflict mm. which I'm not proud of but that's just that's just in me so it would have been really easy to write just a confrontational book just calling out wellness culture that would have actually come quite naturally mm. but I mean I think I was just a bit sick I, I see it all day on on online mm. <laughs> you know in that great arena where <laughs> there's just uh, so much confrontation negativity which it has to be because it's a shitty world but without the building of bridges without like trying to forge a new path forward or whatever I didn't want the book to just be a dead end I didn't want it to just be a rebuttal of some stuff and just be like okay so I'm just gonna leave you on that note like mm. I wanted to suggest a way forward totally because I think some people really struggle with even the basics of how to form a positive relationship with food and I think mm -hmm. that very basic learning from the very beginning again how to have a productive relationship with food is obviously such a big part of eat up and I feel like you yeah. could give it to quite young people as well as people who've kind of developed a, a negative attitude with food over a whole lifetime and I wonder if that was mm -hmm. something that you thought about when writing it having that real breadth of audience yeah I really um this wasn't like front of my mind when I wrote it but it slowly crystallized was this idea that I wanted Eat Up to be the book that I needed when I was like 15, mm. 16. And so I ended up not really trying to, but ended up kind of writing it with that in mind, which means that like, yeah, I mean, some I've had some questions before, like, oh, like, would you in future try and write it more for like older men? And it's like, no, because that's <laughs> not, like, no, sorry. Not older men asking you that, by any chance. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but there's nothing stopping an older man from reading this book. There's nothing no, in there that not. makes it unapproachable. Um, I guess no. other than if you're maybe if you're an older man, everything is designed specifically for you. So when it's not, it can be a bit jarring. <laughs> but yeah, that's one thing. And it's oh, some of my favourite writing is stuff that I read and I think, oh, I w wish I could have read this when I was 15. That's how I felt when I first got into Rookie. I think when I just mm -hmm. got gone yeah. to uni and you know sites like that even stuff that you read on like tumblr and stuff you're like oh wow if i'd had this when yeah. i was 15 and perhaps my relationship with the world would be a little different do you know what though i always think that as well i'm like oh my god everything could have been so different but then i look at teens of today and they're all so miserable so like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who knows um, and we have got such a long way to go in terms of, although there are these voices like yours and, you know, maybe Lindsay West and even your friend Bethany Rutter, who's a kind of fatness blogger that you um, quote a few times in your book. Mm -hmm. We've got these amazing voices that are coming through, but the landscape is still, for the most part, 
pretty difficult to navigate like there's no way you can go without really being told to diet or exercise loads or just you know look like an urban outfitters model or whatever so yeah does that ever get dispiriting for you a little bit yeah like there are so many friends I've heard from who in their day-to-day jobs like you know they'll go into the office and quite often like they'll work somewhere that's kind of pretty clued up about the big issues Mm. you know pretty on it Mm. But they'll go into the office and everyone will be talking about how much they hate themselves because of what they've eaten or how much they will hate themselves tonight after what they've eaten. And it's so behind, you know, for places that are otherwise like, you know, aware of stuff to do with mental health or bodies or whatever. And I think it's pretty telling. However, on the plus side, you know, I've I've had people kind of come to me since reading the book saying like, oh, I'd literally never even thought about like how talking about being guilty about food all the time might be harmful to people around me which is good like sometimes we just need it to be brought to our attention because it is so ingrained like no wonder we all do it until we're like told like oh maybe that's harmful yeah exactly my mum I'm sure she won't mind me saying her and her friends sort of make their own little weight watchers group together but they call it fat club and I've been sat around <laughs> oh with their, their, in their fat club which is you know them obviously using fat as kind of a pejorative term to try and like give themselves a kick up the arse and lose weight and I've been sat as they're doing their fat club but like quite stroppily and my mum has kind of said things like oh Anna thinks that no one should be able to talk about weight or want to lose weight and which isn't true but also imagine (sighs) if that wasn't such a radical thought to be like actually we should all be happy with our bodies and we shouldn't strive to to lose weight all the time because I've never known my mum to not want to lose weight and that's that does have a big influence on you when you're a kid and stuff and I think people don't always Mm. realize while I think that you know talking about how you feel you know in a way that's kind of not flippant and serious and self-examining and it's like oh why do I want to lose weight is always really important but there's also a culture of kind of just talking about how you want to lose weight quite flippantly all the time and people don't realize I think how that can affect other people they're around sometimes yeah yeah definitely and that's that's the thing like it's it's taken as such a, a it seems a threat isn't it this idea that like perhaps diet culture is bad mm-hmm. you know people see it as a personal threat as as an affront to individual choice but nobody like well personally anyway like I am not trying to stop anyone dieting like if you really really want to go on a diet then I cannot stop you and mm-hmm. I will not stop you and you know I do not know the pressures of like living in a fat body or anything like that so it's not mine to comment on mm-hmm. however the industry that thrives on this kind of thinking the industry that like makes a ton of money off it and like feeds your insecurities back to you that is problematic so like that's what I want to take issue with and it's not to do with trying to police individual people's choices at all Mm, exactly and you mentioned there about um it must be difficult writing a book like this because you can't approach it from every individual individual perspective so you can't approach writing this book from say someone who's had an eating disorder that's maybe functioned differently from your own or someone mm-hmm. who's lived their life in a much bigger body or, or or you know there are different elements of race that come into play there's all different kinds of things that no one person can discuss the relationship we have with food because it's so individual and I wonder if there's one thing that you think you learned the most 
in writing Eat Up because you do include lots of different perspectives by quoting people at different points. Was there something that you really felt like you learned more about in the process of writing? I think one of the big ones was just, and I know this is like a real like cop-out answer, so I'm sorry, but like <laughs> I just kind of learned like how much I don't know and how big food is. Mm. Like when I was looking at different food cultures and that, there is so much that is so different to the way we approach food. You know, different perhaps like in one place there'll be a real culture of like eating as a community eating together cooking together you know like in the idea of sitting in your room eating knickknacks is like absolutely doesn't make any sense you know like our way of eating our very confused way of dieting and then you know societally binging and stuff like that like that that's not the same everywhere and it yeah that's what I found really interesting yeah I think that really comes through actually in the reading of it one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because this is a pop culture podcast, is pop culture. <laughs> um, there's loads of it. There's absolutely loads of it in Eat Up. And I feel like just in your life and in your brain, um, <laughs> it's just kind of got its way in there and it's not coming out. Um, no. <laughs> so kind of one, this is, this is a seg into pop culture. It's not really a pop culture question, but one bit of your book that I really liked was when you were talking about the interplay of gender and food and you sort of say that in, in our society, both food and women are traditionally dismissed as frivolous and fanciful. And on Seriously, we're sort of all about making sure all different things are seen as potentially equal, equally valuable, whether that's the Kardashians or Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. you know, just... It's all it's all up there for discussion. And I wonder what's the one type of food you wish people would take more seriously or at least not dismiss? Uh, oh, it's a tough one. Oh, dear. What would I? Yeah, I think it could be like the cream egg or it could be like ready meals, anything. Do you know what? OK, I know like as a company, they're deeply problematic. So this isn't designed to erase that. However, the Starbucks novelty drinks, <laughs> yeah. I think, are really fucking fun. Yeah, <laughs> like, because so most of the time, the people I hear like having a go at the whole concept of them are, are middle-aged men or actually young men as well, saying, "Oh, isn't it ridiculous? Why are girls so stupid? Why do they want the red cups?" Because it's fun. It's really fun. <laughs> and when a Starbucks thing comes out and it's like blueberry muffin flavor, you best believe I'm gonna try it. Like. <laughs> It's just it's just fun. Like nobody's saying it's like at the cutting edge of gastronomy. Like that's not the point of it. Yeah, you're totally misreading how the Starbucks novelty drink functions yeah. if that's what you're expecting. Totally. <laughs> yeah, so there's so much pop culture writing in the book. You mentioned Rihanna, Moonlight, Wait, loads of things. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, were there particular scenes or celebrities or things that you were like, oh, I really want to get to include that in the book was there anything that you really wanted to discuss from the off one of the things i did want to talk about but didn't get a chance to was uh gilmore girls and the way that they eat in gilmore girls which is like obviously a whole whole world you know um because they they have this weird i'd say like semi-troubled relationship Mm, with food where like they cannot cook will not cook and then they just binge on takeout which i think is kind of glamorized in the show but actually if that was your life you wouldn't be particularly happy with it necessarily so like I wanted to talk about that but you know what like it needs a whole book to itself oh I can't wait for the your (laughs) deep dive into Gilmore Girls hyped for that um you mentioned um you may have been asked this before I don't know but you mentioned your history of art degree at the beginning Mm -hmm. is there any food in painting that you know just makes your eyeballs pop out when you see it 
There is, but it doesn't make me eyeballs pop out in a good way. There's this uh, Stanley Spencer self-portrait where he's got his dong hanging out and there's a big bit of meat there and his wife's naked in front of him. It's so funny. But meaty it's such a, penis. I mean, yes, meaty penis. <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, apparently it's about uh, his marriage being unconsummated, hence the raw meat next to his wife who's laying there next to the meat as well, kind of there to be taken. But... Uh, I just I'm so sorry disgusting. like this is why I couldn't that finish my degree disgusting. I just found it so funny <laughs> I, um, I went to the kebab awards a couple of weeks ago which uh, no you did yeah it's great it's amazing um it's a big night where they literally just celebrate like the best kebabs in the whole UK and you know all the people who run the shops come all the chefs you know and just celebrate it and it's amazing and one disgusting part of that night was that they referred to this I think it was like the CEO of Just Eat or someone very tangentially related to kebabs as the Donna Daddy and I was like I just don't oh no. I just don't need to hear those two words together <laughs> it's not something I need to hear oh my god just really <laughs> truly repulsive um yeah so one one quote I really love in the book is food is fashion and you do a great little paragraph or a few paragraphs on how food kind of functions as a type of fashion. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit, because I find it so fascinating. One thing I like to always mention, I think this is just a telling little case study, is that like, what, 150 years ago, people saw white bread as like really classy, like really damn classy, like that is the good stuff. <laughs> and if you were eating brown bread, you were just eating roughage and muck, you know? <laughs> But now, obviously, we've done a U-turn on that. Mm. And if you're eating just like sliced white bread, that is seen as crass and unhealthy. And brown bread's the virtuous stuff. So that is my favorite case study to talk about when I'm talking about like how food really is fashion. Like nothing has changed since then in, in what constitutes white bread, brown bread, what is healthy about them or un unhealthy, whatever. Mm. But like it's just the associations that come with. And what I think is really interesting in food at the moment is that in terms of fashion, what's in is like this weird kind of minimalism. I find it so strange. And I think it, it kind of finds a parallel in things like Marie Kondo and and even like the silhouettes we're wearing at the moment. Yeah. Like it's about being kind of sleek. It's about having like a clear, beautiful, minimalist apartment. It's about having a plate that just has like a smoothie in a bowl and like some bits of kiwi like arranged so artfully on top you know like there's no like maximalist like mess and grandeur or anything like that it's like the opposite of that at the moment I totally feel that and I remember seeing a few years ago and I you know I I think Nigella Lawson's food writing is great so I don't mean this to particularly single her out but the cover of her book not her most recent one I think maybe the one before Simple. Yeah. it's just empty plates yeah, her holding a bunch of white yeah. empty plates what an amazing image to think that? oh simply Nigella or something I think it was right. I completely agree I found it and I mean obviously you know all credit to her as a food writer she's like the queen of it but I found that so weird as well. Like, yeah, empty bowls. Empty Imagine bowls. thinking that that would make a cookbook sell. Obviously, there's so much yeah. that goes into pushing a mainstream writer like that and her cookbook. So clearly, you know, several boardrooms have thought this is the image that people want to buy. And that's amazing that you would buy a food book and not want to see any food on the cover. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of... But they do say that and minimalism kind of, like, flourishes after a recession. 
Okay. And that's it's linked to economics in that way because it's considered like gross to be ostentatious after, you know, a, an That's so funny term. though because I like the the minimalism that I'm seeing in food at least is not um I wouldn't consider it to be like accessible mm. or for the people or like you know like revolutionary in any sense like I would very much see it as to be expensive like it's actually more expensive to have less I would say like it's re- it's cheap to fill your house with stuff to fill your cupboards with stuff like supermarkets are actually reasonably you know accessible and mm. people can shop there but what's more expensive is to buy just like five mangoes from the green grocer yeah. on like Stoke Newington High Street you know like that is actually more expensive yeah. so it's a weird like push and pull that's so true it's a yeah it's it's a it I see exactly what you're saying though across fashion food interior design everything we all know what the kind of like look is <laughs> yeah yeah so it's funny that it's it kind of all happens because you wouldn't I don't think you'd necessarily think of food as functioning in the same way unless maybe you're a food writer and so you're much more aware of food trends and so on mm. um, but mm. for me I think a lot of and for a lot of people it kind of ends at like oh avocado toast is trendy and then you don't think about it any more deeply than that but it is definitely a, a wider thing yeah one thing you said <laughs> in this conversation you mentioned that you thrive on conflict at times and I feel like people who might have seen you're not on Twitter at the moment are you you've deactivated your Twitter account Not at the moment yeah I feel like you're like one of the least controversial or like conflicty people that I know personally and yet people love to take your tweets kind of out of context and be like oh Mm. ruby bashes nigella or whatever Um, oh god (laughs) and is that part of the reason that you stepped away from twitter or is it more personal reasons yeah i think like yeah i was just sick of getting into fights i think as well like it was a bit of a post book come down like so i I wrote this book and i was like you know what like it's gonna change the world and i know that's arrogant but you have to think that in order to get through the writing you have to have this hope that something's gonna change and um nothing changes and I kind of kept logging on and just seeing like people with 300,000 Instagram followers saying like oh the way to heal an eating disorder is to go raw vegan and getting paid for tweets like that and I was just like it just it was so upsetting to see that day after day so I was like you know what I just don't want to see it anymore I do think yeah changes are happening in small ways but when you've got such an enormous challenge like that 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 so many people can profit off of so many companies um you know are making their millions out of you know protein shakes or whatever Mm, it's so mm. hard to fight against that and you know one book is never going to solve all that but I do think I've definitely seen changes and the most amazing thing to me is that people who wouldn't necessarily normally read a book like this which is you know pretty radical and pretty like anti-food establishments and it's kind of niche in a way um Mm -hmm. obviously you've written it to be very accessible so maybe that's why it's kind of transcended its genre and you know got on the sunday times bestseller list and stuff but one thing i love is seeing people that like um i saw a vlogger who's like a nice down-to-earth vlogger not like a big raw vegan deadlifting vlogger Mm -hmm. um (laughs) she she was like you know instagrammed it and i was like oh she's just like a random normal girl and she's reading ruby's book that makes me feel really good i'm really pleased about that 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 does make me feel good as well and you know what i really love is when people say like 
that they've bought it for their mum or mm. like their mum's been reading it because like mums are the great sufferers under the diet industry like they really are Definitely. but I think like within our kind of our generation there's a little bit of an understanding that this stuff might not might not be good and you know we're all on twitter all day every day so we're kind of getting some of those messages but i think for people who are slightly older you're just out of that loop and it's just as we were saying earlier it's so normalized that i don't know for my book to penetrate the mum world is like i think very significant and i'm very happy about it oh that's amazing well i think that's a lovely note to end on thanks so much for being on seriously ruby tando it's great to have you no thank you for having me So that was our March Book Club episode with Eat Up by Ruby Tando. You can follow Ruby on Twitter and Instagram at Ruby Tando and there are links there to get hold of the book. You can also find all that information on our website, seriouslypod.com. We'll be doing another book club episode at the end of April. So stay tuned to our social media feeds and we'll be announcing what the next one is very shortly. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. 